I invite you this morning, if you will, to open your Bibles to the New Testament book of Titus. Titus chapter 3. And today I, I, uh, I've titled my message, What is God Thinking? I don't know about the world you live in, but the world that I am a part of is very confusing right now. And there are things that are going on that I oftentimes scratch my head and say, God, what are you thinking? And so with that background, I want to kind of share with you today um, about, first of all, how this sermon came to be laid on my heart. Um, it was unusual um, as we were wrapping up our Christmas uh, series of messages studying through Advent, I began to pray and ask God about where I needed to go in, in our, our study time on Sunday mornings and what, uh, what it was that I needed to share. I, and I desired to do a series of messages, but I just couldn't lay my finger on exactly what they were. So I began in my prayer time with God to ask him to kind of to indicate to me where I, where I needed to go, but, but why? What is it that you're thinking? Because I don't know about you, there's a lot of questions I have for God. Why he does what he does, or why he doesn't do what he doesn't do. And so I begin to ask God, God, I, I want to know what you're thinking. I want to know what is on your mind, what's on, what captivates your thoughts. Now let me just side, give a side show or a side, uh, side rail on this for just long enough to say that I think I'm probably a lot like you in that I at times feel like I've got God figured out. And I develop my theology and my need understanding of everything, and here's where God fits in all that. And, and if I really be honest with myself, I've realized that what I have done is what the Bible expressly forbids me to do, and that is that I have created God in my own image. I think that oftentimes what we've done with God is, is think that he must be a lot like me, only bigger and stronger and smarter and older. That he, he has attributes like I have, but he has learned how to overcome them. And so I said, okay, God, since this is who you are, I want to know what you think. And it was silence again. This went on for two or three weeks as I was trying to figure out exactly what series God wanted me to share with you, thinking that this was the one that it, that it needed to be. And so I, I, I want to know, God, what you're thinking about. What are you thinking? What's on your mind? What captivates you? Here's, let me say, last week, Jim... Jim shared with us about some of the attributes of God, that he's omnipotent and omnipresent. Uh, he's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's all-seeing. All of those, those things that, 
Yeah, in my theology, I've got that. That's right in the file, the God file. Those are all the things that are about him. But I, 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 I think that I still think that God thinks the way I do and reacts to things the way that I react. And I was just doing some reading, and, and I was reading some A.W. Tozer, who said in, in one, of his, one of his writings, he said, nothing ever occurs to God. I want you to think about that. Things occur to me, like where, where did I put my keys? That's a thought that I have quite frequently. And then it occurs to me that I left them upstairs or I did something. And so, but God never, God already knows everything. And, and not knows it better than me. He knows it. He knows everything that's going to happen. And so I, I, um, I began again to say, God, so what are you thinking about? And I couldn't get anything. And finally... God spoke to me, I believe God spoke to me, and, and shared with me a verse that I had read so many times that explained to me why I wasn't able to get a hold of what God was thinking. It's found in Isaiah chapter 55. And in the book of Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8 says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as high or as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Then I realized what God was lay, laying on my heart was not to understand what or to know what he was thinking, but to understand who he is. And how great he is and how different he is from me and from you. I thought about the, the, the events that have taken place in the last couple of weeks in our nation. Do you know that none of that took God by God, uh, off guard? None of it. Bad things happen, God already knows it. Good things happen, God already knows it. I don't. I like to think I do. But I don't. And the things that God does, I will, according to this verse, I will never understand because he's different than me. Are any of you getting any of what I'm trying to get at? I think that sometimes we have fallen in love with this image of God that we've created that's very familiar to us. Rather than what the Bible reveals to us about who God is that we'll never know and understand his ways and his thoughts. And so I, I, I but I still wanted to know what was on God's mind. And he shared with me another verse. This verse uh, found in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, where Paul writes, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have, it, have entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for him. I realized I was asking the wrong question. Instead of, God, what are you thinking? I needed to ask God, what are you thinking about? 
what are you thinking about? What's your focus? What's your attention on? And when I started asking that, you know what God shared with me? You are. You are. You are what is on God's mind. Now, in light of what I just said about the greatness of God, the power of God, how big he is, that, that we'll never understand him, it's kind of to think that God even knows who I am, much less that he cares and thinks about me. But if you'll read the Bible carefully, you'll see that God's always watching us. That the Bible tells us that God knows my name. That he calls me by my name. He knows things about me that I don't know. He knows what I'm going to do tomorrow. What I'm going to have for lunch today. What I'm going to be doing when I'm 78. I mean, he knows all these things about me. He knows the steps that I that he's ordered for me to take that I don't even know are out there yet. And he's intimately involved in every detail to ensure that everything happens according to his plan. Now I'm going to be honest with you, tell you what I just said, I don't begin to understand. But that's what God has revealed to me, I think, as I was seeking what he's thinking about. He's thinking about me, but not just. Is that boy ever going to straighten up? Is he ever going to get it? Is he ever going to wake up and smell the coffee? What? That's not what he thinks about. Did you notice what it says? We can't even begin to imagine what God has prepared for me. So today I want from Titus chapter 3, and I could have chosen about 25 or 30 or 100 different places in scripture to, to develop this thought. But God only in my heart to look at Titus chapter 3 because I think there it, it is a portrait to us of what God thinks about you. Now I'm going to tell you my bottom line at the very beginning. God loves you. And you can't begin to capture how much he loves you. Not me, preacher. I've got... Uh, I have this wrong with me and that wrong with me. I thought this and I said this last week and I act this way. God loves you. You are, the Bible says, the apple of his eye. He's proud of you. He's delighted in you. He calls you child. He calls you friend. And God, this, this God who created everything by just his breath, knows you and calls you by name. That's just, as the Bible says elsewhere, that's too wonderful for me to understand. It's too wonderful for me to know, but that's true. That's how much he loves me. So I want to talk to you today, instead of just what God's thinking, but what is God thinking about you? What does God think about you? Book of Titus was written in the first century after uh, after Jesus <clears throat> walked on this earth during, during the developing years and the growth years of the church. 
And it was written by the Apostle Paul, perhaps the most influential voice in the history of Christianity. And the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to his protege, his, uh, his come-along, his partner in the ministry, Titus, who is on the island of Crete and is establishing a church and establishing churches there around the island. And that's an overwhelming task. I have never been a church planter, but I know many that are. I used to sit on the board uh, of the Missouri Baptist Convention, and I served in the area of church planting for a couple of years. So I knew many of the church planters around our state, <clears throat> and I just marvel at these ones who are out on the frontier, the front line. Uh, planting, establishing churches. And that's what Titus was doing. And Timothy, or uh, Paul is writing to, to Titus and he's telling him what he needs to teach these people that they need to know. In chapter 2, he talks to them about, uh, about what it is that they need to be uh, to do in relationship with one another within the church. They need what it is that they need to be uh, build up, build around what they, how they need to behave amongst one another. <clears throat> then, in chapter three, the apostle Paul writes to him to talk about in this confusing, mixed-up world, how should behaviors, uh, believers, behave in society? <clears throat> and if you notice in chapter three. Verse 1, that's where I want to start reading at this morning. You'll know that, that you, you'll see there in verse 1 of chapter 3 that his first instruction is to remind them. To remind them. Look at verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers. Remind them to, to, to bring to mind indicates this is something they already knew. Okay? You get that? Now, there, uh, I, you may have thought I was being really nice. I want to put my dig in now. There are things that God asks us to do that we know. My, my, our struggle is not a lack of knowledge. Our struggle is a lack of doing what we know. And so... Paul tells Titus, as you establish these churches and as you teach them, keep reminding them, bring it to their mind that, that they are to be subject to rulers. Wait a second. The rulers and the authorities were, among others, the Roman Empire. And to be a believer, to be a Christ follower, follower during that time in the Roman Empire could be very risky and very dangerous. And the rulers, they read, read Roman history sometime and find out about how, um, how do I say this nice in church, how, how off the wall the emperors of the Roman Empire were. I mean, we're talking about they could have uh, a whole team of psychiatrists there to help these 
to deal with these people. They could work 24 hours a day because these people were mixed up and messed up. And because they were mixed up and messed up, they were doing mixed up, messed up things. I mean, you can, when you, when you uh, blend a mixed up mind with absolute power, <clears throat> it can wreak havoc on the world. And so Paul tells them, tells Timothy, now Timothy, teach them, overthrow that government. No, he says be subject to them. You already know this, but we are to be subject to the authorities elsewhere, Paul says, because God has established the authorities for us, for our good. Not these guys, not these fellows. Yes, these guys, these fellows. <clears throat> so he says, tell them, remind them, they need to be subject to, to the authorities and to the, uh, to the uh, rulers that are over you to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, to be gentle, <clears throat> showing all humility to all men. Verse 3 says, For we ourselves were also once foolish and disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, <clears throat> living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. What that verse says is what you've heard before, but for the grace of God, there go we. I mean, I, we could be <clears throat> just as loony as the emperors and the powers that be were. In fact, some of us are. And, and I've got to say that I've shared many times here with you, so... Uh, forgive me if you've heard this before, but it fits. I think everybody in the world's crazy but me and you, and I'm not real sure about you. <laughs> now, how crazy is it for me to think that I know everything? And so, um, going on, we'll leave that one where it is. Verse 4, but when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, Jesus came, not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy, he, God, saved us. Not because we got good and cleaned ourselves up well, and uh, uh, we earned in any way God's mercy. He just demonstrated his mercy and saved us. And he did so through the washing of regeneration new birth, and renewing of the, of the Holy Spirit, taking something that was dead and unusable and making it profitable. Uh, so through that Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying. And these things I want you to affirm constantly. Tell them this constantly. That those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain 
good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Now, in these verses, there are some things that are that are demonstrated, that are shown um, about the way God thinks about you. So I want to share, I, I've got four of them that I want to share with you briefly about four truths that this is from God's perspective that he says about you. You may not agree with them, but they are what God says, and they are what God thinks about you. The first one of those one of those things is <clears throat> that God thinks you are precious. You know what it means to be precious? It means to have great worth and great value. It means to be something that, that is handled very carefully. When you have a Fabergé egg. You don't take it in the backyard and play kickball with it. You hold it. You embrace it. You protect it because it is precious. The Bible says this is, about, this is true about you as well. That, to, that God thinks you are precious. Now in verse 3 that we read here a moment ago God tells us, the, the, Paul writes to, to Timothy or Titus, and he tells them uh, what God, uh, what, what was true in the believer's life before he became a believer. <clears throat> Some of us have been Christians for so long we kind of forgotten what it was like not to be a Christian. But he reminds us that these. Crazy, mixed-up people in this world around us, we used to be one of them. And uh, here's, notice there are seven things that Paul writes to Timothy uh, in verses 3 and verse 4 about, um, uh, about who, or just verse 3, about who we were before we were, were believers. Look at it. He says, we ourselves were once foolish. You see that word foolish? Before, there, we were ignorant of everything that God was, that was about God. I'm, ignorant is not a, uh, a bad word. It just means we're uninformed. We don't, we don't really know. And because... We don't know how God works. It's hard for us to see God working. And so we live our lives in this world, in this flesh, with an indifference to God because we don't know any better. That's who I was before I became a believer. Now I want you to understand this to be true. I became a believer and a follower of Christ when I was about 18 years of age. The first 18 years of my life, you know what I did? Pretty much the same thing I did the, the years that followed that. I was at church all the time. Okay, I, 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 even though I was at church on Sunday, that day, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, and 
And then any other time that somebody thought we ought to have a Bible study in between, we were there. <clears throat> we were just there all the time. We, we had Bible devotionals in our home. We prayed together. All these things. I, I grew up with all sorts of information about God, but I was ignorant of God. I didn't have a grasp of who he was. That's what he says. We are foolish. The Bible says in the Psalms that the fool says in his heart there is no God. And so if I used to be foolish, the way that I was living was as if I were saying there is no God. Then it says you also were disobedient. And that's a word that... Uh, that means to be re rebellious against authority. To be rebellious against authority, to, 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 to be unwilling to do what, what the one in authority over me says to do. Then he says, you also were deceived. And I think that what he's saying there is you were, you were getting deeper and deeper and deeper into sin. And you, you were convinced, though, that you had control over it and you could handle it. I can stop anytime I want to stuff. And that's being deceived at the control and the power of sin in one's life. Sin will eat your lunch. Society will eat your lunch. Satan will eat your lunch. Yourself will absolutely consume you. But you have to understand that you're deceiving yourself by going along, acting as if there is no God. Then he says, serving various lusts and pleasures. Being under the control or being... The word there that mean, uh, for serving means to be captive, to be enslaved. Uh, and, and we became a slave to our fleshly appetites and passions. You ever find yourself doing something and then saying, where did that come from? Saying something, acting a certain Where did that come from? It's because if we're not a slave to to Jesus Christ, we're a slave to our sin, and it'll destroy us. And it's seeking to do that. And so we were serving and slave to whatever looks good and smells good and tastes good. Then he goes on and he says um, that we also were uh, living in malice and envy. Our lives were filled and given over to a lifestyle of evil. I'm not talking about real mean, bad stuff necessarily, but it could be. Uh, but what he's saying is that that we were we were given over, we were um, living a life in harmony with what. We're supposed to be opposed to a lifestyle of evil that is never satisfied. Then it says that we were hateful, mean-spirited, hard to get along with. 
and we also hated one another. If this were, if, if, if I were looking for a description of our world today, that's what I see. We see people that hate one another. Why? Because we don't know Jesus Christ. Now, when you look at that list of seven things, wouldn't it have just been very easy for God to just write us off? I mean, does that list cause you to say, I think I should go and send my son and let him take a beating and die a horrible, agonizing death so that I can bring those people to me? No, but you know, you know why God did it? Because he's not us. He, his ways are different than our ways. His thoughts are different than our thoughts. And he doesn't see you this way any longer. Now, God sees you as precious. God sees you as precious. Now, what, he, what it's going to tell us is that, that God is, is going to do all this through sending his son to be our savior. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, Whom he appointed, or whom he poured out on us, abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. God thinks, here's how much value God puts in you. He says, you're worth my son. <clears throat> now just think about that for a little bit. I remember when uh, I was preaching at a revival, I don't know, 40 years ago, because almost 40 years ago, because Nathan was a, was a young child then. And I remember saying to them in that, in that preaching moment that I love you and I may love you enough to die for you, but I don't love you enough to let my son die for you. I will do everything in my power to intervene if you try to take my son and do to him what the, what the, uh, the guards and the Romans and what the world did to Jesus. But you know what God did? He saw you and said, it's worth giving my son for. God sees you as precious. Let me share, share with you the second thing that's true, I believe, in this, in this text. And that is that God sees you as perfect. I struggled a little bit with this point. Because I know better. I don't see myself as perfect. Is there anybody here, remember your church, and this roof, this new roof that we got on this building won't stop lightning. Anybody want to stand up and say, I'm perfect? But do you know what the Bible says about you? That you have been justified. That you have been justified through Jesus Christ. Those of you who are in Christ. Look at, look at verse 7. Verse 7 starts off by saying that having been justified by his grace. Bible tells us that what Jesus did to this group of people that were like, you know, those seven things that we talked about in verse 3 is he came and demonstrated God's love for us, Romans 5, 8. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And 
it says that he has that he justified us through what Jesus did on the cross. Now, to be just, I want to make sure you understand this. To be justified means a whole lot more than be, to be forgiven. Okay? This is why so many of us, our salvation doesn't mean as much to us uh, as it ought. Because we forget or we don't understand what it means to be justified. It means to be made, I remember learning this in my youth group at church when I was growing up, that to be justified means to be made as if, just as if I'd never sinned. God's great mercy was poured out on me and his great grace was poured out on me <clears throat> and Jesus saved me he made me as if I'd never sinned I know better I mean I I've got a memory I've got history sometimes I crazily write a diary and recall the things that I do and if I don't they seem to come up at the most awkward moments when I run into somebody at the mall <clears throat> that I wasn't real kind to 13 years ago or something like that. I understand that I'm not perfect in my actions and my manners, but the Bible tells me I am perfect. I am made perfect in Jesus Christ through his grace. He has declared me to be Declared me, when I say me, I'm talking to you too. He's declared me to be righteous, to be upright, to be square with him. Sometimes we think when we come to God and we receive Jesus as our Savior, we get forgiven. But that God is kind of there with one eye squinted saying, but watch it. I got my eye on you. Bible says that we are made just as if we'd never sinned. God sees us as perfect. Now when something's perfect, <coughs> it has a whole lot more potential than something that's marred and imperfect, doesn't it? Hello? Which is better? A brand new car off the showroom or one that's been driven out on the highway? For 35 years and been beaten up in an 18 different accidents. The Bible says that he sees us. God think, when God thinks of me, he doesn't sit there with his legal pad and write down every bad thing I've ever done. He thinks I'm perfect. He sees me as Now God's smart, okay? God knows. And that the Bible tells me over in the book of Revelation that... When we stand before his throne and our works are judged, we're going to have to give an account of everything we've done. That's true for believers and Christians as well. So that, that tells me that God has not, um, that God is not some benevolent Santa Claus up there that's just willing to ho, ho, ho away our sin. But it, when he looks at us, he sees us as being perfect and therefore the potential of our lives to do what he wants uh, with us is unimaginable. 
You see how God's ways and God's thoughts are different than ours, even about ourselves. God thinks you are perfect. Let me tell you a third thing. God thinks you are privileged. God thinks you are privileged. Look again at verse 7. Having been justified by his grace, that we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now what that phrase that I've underlined means is this. He didn't just remove the punishment of sin. He declared me to be an heir of God and co-heirs with, with Jesus of his kingdom and all that he has. I am an heir of a king, of the king. And because I am an heir of the king, I have the absolute assurance <clears throat> That's what hope means. That I will have eternal life. Because after all, I've been a pretty good chap. I mean, I preach sermons most every Sunday. I went to seminary. I got... None of that's true. It's true that I've done those things. But it's not true that that's where my eternal life is coming from. My eternal life, my hope that I have is what Jesus did but because of what Jesus, because he did do what he did for me, I can have the assurance that I am an heir of God's kingdom, of the hope of eternal life. I, I wish that I had the time to, to develop that more fully, but just think of, what, of what's in store for us. And it's not just when we get there. It's even now. We have the presence of his Holy Spirit, <clears throat> John says, to guide us into all truth, to give us understanding, to call to remembrance those things that Jesus said. We have all this here and now. And then we go to heaven. <clears throat> Remember what David wrote in Psalms 23? Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And then I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I have that same hope, that same assurance, no matter what comes along. I have the privilege. And that's what, that's what Jesus, or, or what Paul writes to, uh, uh, to Titus, that you are privileged. Let me give you the fourth thing. God thinks you are profitable, useful, beneficial, that you can do something, that you can do these things that his Bible teaches us and tells us all the way through that we can do. God thinks you're profitable. Again, in verse 1, he told them, Remind the people to be subject to the authorities and live this kind of, of good and wholesome life. <clears throat> and then in verse, uh, verse 8, he says that the saying is trustworthy. And he says at the end of verse 8 that they are good and they are profitable to men. If we live this life 
the way that God tells us to, we can make an impact on this world. We are profitable. Now, we have an, an enemy. We have an enemy who is going to try to do everything he can to keep this message from settling into your heart. And he will, one of the ways he will do that is by telling you all the things you can't do and how worthless you are. Do you remember what you said a week ago Tuesday? Isn't it amazing? You can't remember what where your keys are, but you can remember stuff that you said and did umpteen years ago. You know why? Because you have an enemy that's trying to draw that to your attention all the time. He wants to tell you you're worthless. <coughs> but God wants you to know that you're profitable. He says... God says, don't look at the things that he says, Satan says you can't do. Instead, look at the things that you do. Look at how you live. Satan says, yeah, look at how you live. You're a failure. God says, no, you're my child. He thinks these thoughts for you. God saved us for a purpose. And it wasn't just for us to go to heaven. Although I want you to understand I think that that is a, that's worth it just there, just that. It's not just something that God threw in. That's, that's worth coming to Jesus for just to assure yourself of heaven. But that's not all there is. God also saved us for life in this world. <clears throat> and you can be profitable in life in this world. God can use your walk, the way that you live your life. Those who walk in a disciplined manner, who obey the laws of the land, who submit to the people in authority over them, who are walking in faith, that can make an impact on the world. God can use your witness. The things that you share to people around you, as you share your testimony of faith, and you, you keep your life constantly in the hands of God. <coughs> And he also says God can use your works. God can use your works. God not only saved you to keep you out of hell, but he saved you to put you to work for himself. And that's what he thinks about you. You can do this. You can live life. You can, you can, you can have victory in your life. Not through positive thinking. But through the grace of God, the same grace that saved you, will keep you and sustain you all the way through. This is what God thinks of you. Don't you think it's time we stop thinking about ourselves the way we think about ourselves and start thinking about ourselves the way that God thinks about us? If what I've shared with you is true today, and I believe them with all my heart, what is it that I can't handle? What is there that I can't face? What is it that's too big and too great and too mighty for me to face? I need to have courage, not fear, but just trust in what God has said about me.
want you to bow your head with me if you will, please. Father, our, our, our thoughts today are turned toward what it is that you think of us. We don't understand your ways. We don't understand the way you work. I'm, gr I'm grateful, God, that I have a God that I can't wrap my mind around. But I'm grateful, Father, that you reveal to me what you think of me and how you think of me and how you tell me how precious I am to you, how valuable I am to you, <clears throat> how profitable I am to your kingdom, how privileged I am. Father, I, I, I know that's true in my life, and I also know it's true in each of our lives today. So, Father, in these next few moments as we chew on that which we've heard you share with us today, I pray, Lord, that each one of us today might be have the mindset and the heart set to just say, God, I want to have by faith these things to be true in my life. Now, these things are only true, Father, if we're in Jesus Christ. But in Jesus Christ, if I give my life to you today, trusting in what Jesus did on my behalf on the cross, your word tells me these things are true about me. <clears throat> so, Father, I pray for each person that's here each one watching by way of video that today we would place our lives in your hand. Thank you, Father, for loving us. Thank you for loving us so much that you shared with us today how much you do love us. In the blessed and holy name of Jesus, we pray it. Amen.